Hello, everyone. You're listening to American Indian Airwaves. For Marcus Lopez, Fabiana Hirsch, I'm your host for the hour, Larry Smith. What we know from numerous studies on this subject is that American Indians, Alaska Natives are often undercounted and misclassified, not only in COVID and mortality data specifically, but in all types of data collection. We want to understand structural racism. We need to understand the different way which different communities participate in U.S. economy and society. Black and Latino indigenous communities participate structurally in a different way. Of course, coming out of slavery, then Jim Crow, the genocide against indigenous communities, the subordination of Mexicans, which were forcibly incorporated into the United States, uh, continued subordination of immigrants. On today's program, how COVID-19 is impacting the larger Native American communities within Los Angeles County, California, and dismantling capitalism, racism, plus more, and KPFK's 61st anniversary. You're listening to American Indian Airwaves. You can hear when the moon shines bright, the lone This year marks uh, the 61st anniversary of KPFK, and I'm joined on the phone with uh, Marcus uh, Lopez, co-host and executive producer of American Indian Airwaves. And we want to encourage listeners to uh, support KPFK in its 61 years of resistance of commercial radio and providing those alternative voices in the fight for social justice and the fight for human rights. We want to ask the listeners to support the station during the station's mini uh, fun drive by uh, visiting the website at KPFK or calling 818-985-5735. And we want listeners to know that there is an abundance of premium items that they can choose from from the website or listeners continue their support by making monthly donations as part of the station's Sustainer Circle program. And one premium item, Marcus, um, I know that we wanted to uh, inform listeners of that uh, we selected out of the KPFK's uh, list of premium items or thank you items to offer listeners is Greg Palace's new book, How Trump Stole 2020, The Hunt for America's Vanished Voters, and that's a $125 premium. Well, Larry... Yes, 61 years of KPFK. I think it's extremely important that people really realize we're in a very pivotal year, obviously, with the pandemic and also with our programming, American Union Airways, 30-some-odd year. How Trump Stole 2020 with uh, comics by Ted Rao, Greg Paulus, talks about the manipulation 
of the system and individuals, especially the Republican Party, that have been stealing the vote, literally. And the earlier book, Larry, The, uh, the Best Democracy Money Can Buy, he follows it up with how Trump stole 2020 as a identifying certain individuals like Chris Kobach, like John Huston, like Rebecca Ramil, like uh, Ryan Kemp. He says uh, the Hans, the Fox, Vaughn, Spankowski, like Karl Rove and Kim Starch and all this type of individuals and comics within the back uh, be a very detailed, Larry, about how the elections were not stolen, manipulated, and at the same time, they eliminated a lot of what he called the Jim Crow vote, you know, the elimination of Afro-American, Asian-American, Latino, Latinx vote within the different states, and he itemizes all Larry. Very, very interesting read, but at the same time, we're offering this, Larry, and to our listeners for our premium and contribution of $125, Larry, what you said. And we want to remind listeners, Marcus, that they can pick up Greg Palace's book as a thank you item uh, at kpfk.org. The book, How Trump Stole 2020, The Hunt for America's Vanished Voters. It's a $125 premium. And obviously this year being a presidential election and determining the next four years of who will head the executive office of the United States, uh, you'll find the book informative, helpful, in knowing how Donald Trump and his administration and his campaign are strategically attempting to steal the 2020 presidential elections. Again, the website is kpfk.org, or you can call 818-985-5735 or KPFK. You can choose from a variety of premium items on the KPFK website, or you can simply make monthly donations as part of our Sustainer's Circle. And now in the first part of our two-part show here on American Indian Airwaves, we go to the heart of the Tongva, Gabarino, Hachiman, and Tataviam Nations in Los Angeles County, California, where COVID-19 rates continue to escalate, not only within the county, but throughout the state and throughout indigenous nations. I speak with Dr. Andrea Garcia, medical doctor, and from the Mandan Hidatsa Arikwa Nations. She is an appointed commissioner with the Los Angeles City County Native American Indian Commission and works with the Los Angeles County Department of Mental Health, the American Indian Counseling Center, and is a board member for the United American Indian Involvement Center, one of the largest and longest-running urban Native American organizations, and I speak with Alexandra Ferguson Valdez. She's staff and executive director of the Los Angeles City County Native American Indian Commission. And I start the interview by asking Dr. Andrea Garcia to provide us an update in how COVID-19 is impacting the larger urban Native American population throughout Los Angeles County. Speaking for LA only, the current positive cases for American Indians, Alaska Natives is at 162 as of today, and there are 12 deaths. So I think what you're picking up on as far as a lack of media coverage would be presumably, my, my assumption would be that mainstream media is like, oh, those numbers are really small, it doesn't matter. But what we know from numerous studies on this subject is that American Indians, Alaska Natives are often 
undercounted and misclassified, not only in COVID and mortality data specifically, but in all types of data collection. Um, you and I know that, you know, we've been working on homelessness and, you know, that that's just another example of how we're undercounted and misclassified. So what, you know, 162 cases in and of itself is never a good thing, let alone 12 deaths. But we estimate that this is at least half of what's out there, at least half of what's out there. And we know specifically for mortality data that um, misclassification can happen on the order of anywhere between 35% and 50%. So the fact that they captured or counted um, 12 American Indian Alaska Native deaths is concerning. I would assume that that is a correct number, yet at the same time, what are the, the misclassified cases out there? We don't know. So I think as a whole, what has garnered attention, rightly so, is the caseload um, and mortality on the Navajo Nation. Um, and that has definitely garnered a lot of media attention. But I haven't seen, you're absolutely right, I haven't seen the same amount of attention paid to just urban um, or indigenous communities as a whole. And I, and I wonder if that's due to the data misclassification. With Los Angeles County having the largest urban Native American population for a county and just the statistics and the figures that you're providing to us. I wonder how that compares to other counties in the state of California that also have large Native American uh, populations like San Jose County or or San Francisco. And I was curious, I was looking at the CalMatters uh, COVID-19 tracker a website, and it indicated after Pacific Islanders, Native Hawaiians, and Latinx uh, population groups that Native Americans were actually the third hardest or most impacted by COVID-19. And I was wondering if that is consistent with the work that you're doing out there uh, within Los Angeles County. I think um, anecdotally, I mean, that might make sense. However, I don't think, again, the, the data would support that only because we can't make inferences from data that is incorrect. So it's it's interesting to hear that at that level that we rank number three, and it very well could be the case, but I would hate to, to make inferences on on data that we just don't know, you know, the full story about. So for instance, like there is racial ethnic data collected for um, COVID cases, you know, after a certain point in time, but we know that 45% of the cases that are reported do not have racial ethnic data. And so I think with like such huge gaps, it's really dangerous to make assertions about like, oh yeah, you know, this is how it is. But anecdotally, you know, we know that um, our local clinic, United American Indian Involvement is um, testing folks and they have seen some, like a handful of positive cases. Mm-hmm. But we also know that, um, you know, or we're not sure how often we're getting tested either. So it's, it's either like we're getting tested and the data is misclassified or we just don't want to get tested because of, you know, fill in the blank um, as far as reasons not to mistrust, you know, access, transportation, et cetera, et cetera. And Alexandra, in terms of the kind of resources that have been available to the larger Los Angeles County uh, American Indian population, 
has there been enough infrastructure capacity, if you will, to provide the necessary resources to the larger urban uh, American Indian community? And uh, are there any risks, given the political economic situation that we find ourselves in at so many levels, whether it be city, county, state, or federal? Yeah, I mean, I think so. I'm. I think you've been updated on. And I think you've been a part of some of these calls on this um, L.A. Native COVID response working group that uh, was created by the commission back in the middle to late part of March. And the way that model, while it's been incredible what we've been able to find in the county and the city to connect our community to, whether it be food kits weekly or um, feminine hygiene products or tapping into um other grant programs that are being ministered by the city and county. Um, I think what the issue is, is that we don't necessarily think what we're getting linked to isn't necessitated by the need in our community. So we get, you know, upwards of between 40 to 100 food kits a week, which is wonderful, but is that really meeting the need of our community? We don't actually know the true extent to the need. We have a lot of inferences that going into this pandemic, there was um, high rates of food insecurity that we can only imagine was exacerbated by this pandemic, but we don't have that data, too, about what is our current needs and what are the quantities that people need of, whether it be rental assistance or food support and those things. So right now, I think what we've done is created, we're providing what we can, but I think there's always greater need. But again, we just don't know those true numbers. It all comes back to data. I think in a perfect world, we would have a a needs assessment going on to determine what are the greatest needs of our community and how much do people need and, and what are some of those obstacles? Because I think a lot of it, too, is that we rely really heavily on our American Indian Alaska Native community-based organizations to help us get those resources to our community members. And we have to be mindful that they are also experiencing this pandemic. And what does that mean for their ability to serve, whether it's staffing hours that have been reduced or, you know, um, having to adhere to the new guidelines? I mean, it's a lot that they're going through, too. And so we have to figure out a way to get more resources into the hands of our community members without putting another burden on our CBOs. So it's kind of this big challenge, but I think we're doing what we can, but there's always more. I think our community needs more than we're currently able to find, to be honest. And we're speaking with Dr. Andrea Garcia and Alexandra Ferguson-Valdez, both from the Los Angeles City-County Native American Indian Commission. Here on American Indian Airwaves, we're speaking on how COVID-19 is impacting the larger urban Native American population throughout Los Angeles County, California. And now back to the interview. By CDOs, you mean community development organizations such as the United American Indian Involvement, and it's one of the longest-running Native American urban organizations that provide a variety of services to the Los Angeles urban um, Native American community. And I was just curious for the both of you, are there any particular resources that are lacking, that are highly deficient, that you see in the capacity of the work that both of you are doing? And are there any particular resources that are more crucially needed over the other resources that are lacking? Andrea, then Alexandra? I think that our response has been intentional and in having our community-based organizations um, be the purveyors of information, sharing information with each other and us so that we could leverage um, whatever resources we could. And for them to do the outreach themselves, because we know that trusted messengers are is probably the best 
practice um, that we could do to, to better inform our community. Um, you know, people are sort of hit over the head every day with messaging, news conferences, et cetera, et cetera. But until people see themselves in these messages and, and re receive these messages in a way that are in alignment with their cultural values, you know, not to say that, that people aren't going to take it seriously, because they are and they have been, but I think it, it does something a little extra to, to reframe the moment and remind people like, oh, yeah, like, you know, we're, we're doing this not only for ourselves, but we're doing it for our community and our families. And so I think that that has been the, the number one way that we've found to, to sort of message and outreach to our community. And perhaps you're aware of it, but we just released a PSA a couple of weeks ago with this exact type of messaging where we, you know, we're centering the language that we use in our community and our values of taking care of our elders, taking care of our families, taking care of our community. So I think that's been really effective for us in getting um, the word out, right? Not only to individual community members, but our CBOs who serve them. The second thing is I think you know, we, we knew we needed to do this from, from the get-go. And so we just started responding and meeting, you know, as, as we saw appropriate and hearing the stories firsthand. But what's been interesting is that we've also seen, um, you know, the community or the organizing community and other um, ethnic, racially, ethnically identified um, community-based community organizations come together in coalition under the, uh, the guidance of the Advancement Project, who has been fabulous and sort of lifting up all of these voices um, of color and bringing them um, in front of the Board of Supervisors, in front of our county departments of public health and health services. And so they've been also um, very effective in advocating for things like PPE, for things like funding community-based organizations to do exactly that, is to, to get the message out um, to their own constituents. Um, I think we all sort of accept that like any messaging directly from like, particularly like government entities, mm -hmm. it's kind of tough <laughs> to swallow if you're, if you're from a community that has been historically disadvantaged, oppressed, wronged by these systems. And so I think that that effort is just a, a larger sort of macro level, level effort that speaks to the need to work with our community-based organizations to better engage our folks. Like, we know where to find each other. Um, you know, we know what what sort of language to use, so why not give us the resources to do that? And Alexandra? Yeah, I think going to some of the resources stuff, talking about, I think you were asking, like, what are some of the ident other identified resources where, like, our community could really benefit? Yeah. Um, and I think they're not entirely separate from what other communities are facing. I just think that it's appropriate that they're delivered from our community-based organizations. And I think one of the biggest things that we keep hearing a lot on, whether it's commission talking about it or whether it's our working group, which is, you know, made up of what, between 10 and 15 different organizations at this point, is a lot around, you know, childcare, a lot around the digital divide. That is, you know, because of remote learning. I mean, our students, within LUSD have some of the highest, I think the highest rate of um, dropout rate. And so it's how can we support our students at this time too? How do we support our young people? And I think this is an issue, well, the childcare issue I think is one that's affecting all communities. But I really think this issue of the digital divide is, you know, as we embark on the next school year, it's a huge issue that we need to figure out a way to support our students and make sure that they're staying connected, that they have quality internet, that they have the resources to link in with their classes, whether it's a tablet or laptop. So 
that's a lot of that, I think, kind of in this next phase of the pandemic we're embarking in, being the new new school year, I think that's one of the most, at least what I think and what I'm hearing is one of the most prominent needs. And so figuring out, you know, how, how do we identify where there's, if anyone's doing that kind of work already, how do we ensure that our community organizations are linked in to get some of those resources? I think a lot of the effort of the working group over the past, what, four and a half months has just been what's out there and how do we ensure that the Native community is getting a piece of that and making sure they're aware and that um, whether it's a PPE distribution, whether it's a grant program, just making sure our community is getting part of that because there's a lot of great work going on in LA County uh, and we just as a group keep raising up that our community can't be left out. The end of July marks the end of the temporary federal COVID-19 unemployment. And for those uh, Native American individuals and families in Los Angeles County that are going to lose that or could lose that federal unemployment, that will certainly exacerbate their economic situation. And I was curious, are there any urban uh, Native American organization programs or county programs that will help fill in that economic void so Native American individuals and families uh, can um, maintain some basic level of financial stability, if you will, or financial income. So I'm not sure if you're aware or if your listeners are aware, but um, the commission has a separate body called the Self-Governance Board, which is actually a community action agency who administers the community service block grant. And CSBG, as it's known, um, is a poverty alleviating grant that is, its mission is to create self-sufficiency. And so um, to be eligible for the program, a family has to be at or below 100% federal poverty level. And there's a variety of services that are offered in terms of addressing poverty and and trying to reach that goal of self-sufficiency. The board currently has three subrecipient agencies who um, offer a variety of services um, in terms of like rental assistance, um, utility assistance, food assistance, and they are Paku Cultural Community Services, Gabrielino Tongva Tribal Council, and United American Indian Involvement. And they are currently recipients of this grant and have services that could help offset some costs the family might be incurring right now. I mean, obviously, that's not income replacement per se in terms of the $600. But if a family is in need of any of those types of services or other types of kind of emergency-related poverty-alleviating programs, those three agencies offer services currently and are a great resource. And um, I'd be happy to share with you the contact information after this call if there's a way that you can share that with your viewers. In fact, if listeners are interested in this information, they can visit the lanaic.lacounty.gov website, or they can visit on Facebook, the LA Native COVID-19 Facebook site. Again, that's LA Native COVID-19. Or on Facebook, they can visit the AI or American Indian Commission Facebook site to access information regarding some of the resources that Alexandra is alluding to. In concluding with the interview, I was wondering, are there any final comments uh, by either one of you? And I'll start with Andrea, then Alexandra. Sure. So I I don't want to be too preliminary in this. (laughs) Maybe Alexandra has some thoughts. But um, we are um, actively in conversation um, with one of the um, testing entities to provide 
targeted testing for our community. We do not have any dates yet or locations, but we're hoping to respond to, you know, all of the barriers that I mentioned earlier by offering targeted testing for our community members. And so when that becomes available, we'll certainly share it far and wide with the community and we'll specifically reach out to you, Larry, too. um, So maybe you can help us get the message out um, if and when that happens. Alexandra? Yeah, and some final thoughts on my part. Um, I would encourage community to frequently visit the Los Angeles City County Native American Indian Commission's website, as well as our Facebook page, and then also the LA Native COVID Response Working Group, which is a mouthful, um, also has a Facebook page where, um, as a collective, we post all sorts of resources um, that are available, whether it's a city, county, or um, a resource that one of the um, Native orgs I just spoke about. But that is kind of this repository of current opportunities that we want to make our community aware of. And so, you know, I'm doing my best to continually try to link into programs that the city and the county um, are getting up and running. Both governments received a large amount of CARES money that will be taking shape in the form of a lot of different grant and um, grant programs and other types of services in the coming months. So it'll be a place that you can continually find out about these resources and ensure that our community is connected and aware of this. I think, you know, our CBOs are incredible and they do incredible work, but we also want to ensure that our Native community is being linked with the swath of services and programs that the county and city are offering at this time because there are some really great supportive services going on. Um, And so, yeah, those are great resources. And if there's ever a need for more information or if community wants to share a concern that we aren't addressing, I can be contacted via our website, and I would love to hear that feedback so we can redirect our focus and try to find some resources that people are in need of. Ian, you're listening to an interview with Dr. Andrea Garcia from the Mandan, Hidatsa, and Arikwa Nations. She's an appointed commissioner with the Los Angeles City-County Native American Indian Commission and Alexandra Ferguson-Valdez, who's staff executive director for the Los Angeles City-County Native American Indian Commission. Both of them are speaking on how COVID-19 is impacting the larger urban Native American population and the resources that are available. You can visit the lanaic.lacounty.gov website, or you can visit on Facebook, the LA Native COVID-19 Facebook site, or the American Indian Commission or AI Commission Facebook site for more information and resources available. We want to remind listeners here on American Indian Airwaves that KPFK celebrates its 61st anniversary and part of the anniversary acknowledgement is realizing that KPFK, an alternative voice in the media landscape, requires the necessary funding for basic operations. Here on American Indian Airwaves, we want to remind listeners they can visit the kpfk.org website or call 818-985-5735 to make a donation. KPFK listeners can donate monthly as part of the Sustainer's Circle, or they can pick up the brand new book by Greg Palace called How Trump Stole 2020, The Hunt for America's Vanished Voters for a $125 thank you gift or premium item. The book is relevant, it's timely, it's urgent, it's informative, particularly as America is on the cups of presidential elections this coming November 2020. 
Lowry, the the book in itself is totally important because of the fact that they were offering a premium. 818-985-5735. 818-985-5735. On the internet, kpfk.org. We need your support. Our listeners are very important. They're the ones that are going to have, through 61-year period, Larry, have one that stepped forward into even, I would dare say, Larry, even create policies and procedures that challenging racism in this country. And we talk about the American Indian Airways. We talk about the injustices of, of indigenous peoples. We've talked about injustices within the largest economic reservation in, in United States, Southern California, and how the American Indian Airways through KPFK has been an instrument into not only create dialogue, but also have the opportunity that in order to not only influence, but I dare say, Larry, um, create a, a continual dialogue into challenging the status quo and challenging the uh, misinformation about indigenous people. Now, the book, Larry, How Trump Stole 2020 by uh, uh, Craig Pellis is really something that is a, it could be your ammunition, your ammunition for knowledge to combat the Republican and Trump BS. And you, we have people like Karl Rowe. We have people like the Hans the Fox von Spakowski. We have individuals like Chris Kobach, where he says that, quoted that list of 7.2 million potential double voters that targeted in one in seven Afro-Americans, one in six Asian-Americans, and Latinx voters noted vote twice chosen by his buddy Trump to head a voter fraud commission, which collapsed when they couldn't find any fraudulent voters because who actually does that? And so this book has many points. We're talking about cross-checking. We're talking about those different states that they threw away. Larry totally threw away, ignored thousands upon thousands of votes. We need this in order for as ammunition to defend our democracy. The little we have now, the important thing about our programming, the important thing about the American Indian Airways, it, talk, it talks about the injustice or the, uh, the American indigenous, pe- indigenous people and nations, treaty rights, other rights. You know the racism, the structural, the the all these different things that we're going to hear that Professor Williams is going to Robinson, uh, Williams Robinson is going to talk about is that without this dialogue, without this show, without KPFK, we're going to lose that. We're going to not come to the table like Corey Dubin, our, our a, a fearless uh, past um, colleague of American Indian Airways, said, put your money where your wallet is, right, Larry? Put your money where your, you hear, where your ear is. Put the, your ear and put your questions on these very important topics to the table. And you can do that by phoning 818-985-5735. That's 818-985-5735. And the folks that are listening to the Internet, it's kpfk.org. For $125, Larry, it's a gift. Now, you know, it's, it's a gift to us. Just say thank you. It's our, if there are ways of saying thank you, Larry, for we want to – if you could um, – uh, create this 125, and I think they accept payments, don't they, Larry? 
at the same time, organizations or groups within the community can come up with the money and submit it, you know, under a name, submit it in order to give that support, uh, pledging to KPFK at this point. Now, Marcus, uh, for our listeners, uh, they're going to get a taste of a two-part interview with Dr. William Robinson, who's professor of sociology at the University of California in Santa Barbara. And listeners are going to hear part one of a two-part interview with him and talk a little bit about what listeners are going to hear and, and, um, and also how it gives listeners a sense, as you just said, of the kind of things that we uh, in American Indian Airwaves that we bring to KPFK and why it's so important that listeners support KPFK, either with the $125 premium of the book, How Trump Stole 2020, The Hunt for America's Vanished Voters by Greg Palace, or visiting the website at kpfk.org and choosing from other premium items, or simply becoming a monthly sustainer circle with a monthly donation, or they can actually call 818-985-5735 and make their donations there. Exactly, Larry, and I think it's important. What your interviews in the past, the era of um, pandemic, very important, what we've done with the pandemic and our program um, about the pandemic and the continued policy of genocide within the United States, it's cutting edge, Larry. And this thing where we're talking about, this upcoming interview, part one series of Professor William Robinson talks about the previous interviews we have, Larry. We talked about fascism, talked about capitalism, talked about, you know, the, this now this, this massive uprising within this country about Black Lives Matter, the notion of injustice, the notion of racism. He's going to talk about this, this triangular notion of racism. He goes into that area. And who more than the African-American community and with the indigenous community knows about racism, Larry, about the beginning of racism, the slavery and all that. He goes into capitalism. He goes into structures of racism. And then in turn, he goes into the second part, which we want to... Actually, the first part, Larry, is kind of like a teaser, folks, is that, yeah, we're going to hold on to this, but at the same time, we're in a fundraising uh, mode. So this conversation we're going to have is at the cutting edge that will give the Native American population, indigenous population, a food for thought, as well as all these different structures. He talked about, Larry, like Fred Hampton, the Black Panther leader that got assassinated and killed by the system itself, that the state that he talked about, without, talking about racism without talking about capitalism is a mute point. You've got to bring up the both. And so he, he discusses that. It's really some of the very good formulated thought that uh, Professor Robinson expresses in this interview, Larry. And now Faviana Hirsch and Marcus Lopez interview Dr. William Robinson. He is professor of sociology and teaches in global studies and the author of the forthcoming book, The Global Police State. He teaches at the University of California, Santa Barbara. And now part one of a two-part interview on authoritarianism, fascism, the decline of capitalism, and American democracy. Good evening and welcome to American Indian Airwaves. We're very pleased to be joined once again by Professor William Robinson, who is a professor at in Global Studies at UCSB and also Sociology, Latin American Studies, and I think has a book coming out. Uh, it's coming out in two weeks, The Global Police State. What we wanted to do was begin 
this evening by talking about the role of institutional racism as an inherent part, it seems, of capitalist economies. That's a big question, but maybe you could help us to navigate it. Sure. Well, thanks for having me back on. And yes, it's an inherent part of capitalist economies. And in part one, which we did a, a, a few weeks ago, we spoke about global capitalism, this 530-year-old system. And I emphasized the deep crisis that it's been in since the turn of the century and aggravated many times over by the pandemic. So we need to go back to that to address the question you just asked me about institutional racism. And I want to say that in the popular imagination and the discussion, even now in the uprising, there is, in my view, a very superficial understanding of racism. Uh, what created it? What perpetuates it? And we can't effectively fight and eradicate what we don't understand. So what I'd like to do, I'd like to take a little bit of time to respond to your question. And I'd like to start actually by reading just a few paragraphs from an article that I published subsequent to the first part of this um, interview, and then break that down a little bit. So I wrote that as anti-racist protests continue unabated across the United States, the ruling groups have been forced momentarily onto the defensive by the sheer scale of this uprising, the first full-scale pushback against what I call global police state, of course, in the richest and most powerful country in the world. But absent a more frontal attack on the root causes of racism, and that's what I want to get into in just a moment, the uprising may be hard-pressed to resist a counter-offensive from above involving a combination of repression, mild reform and co-optation. And of course, that's what we're seeing right now. So I'm going to continue reading these few paragraphs. The powers that be are already embracing the language of the struggle against systemic racism. Racial justice is now being espoused by political and economic elites, the CEOs of major global banks and corporations whose policies have perpetuated racial inequality, have taken the knee, they've declared their solidarity with aggrieved communities, and both the Democratic and public, uh, Republican Party stalwarts have attempted to simply commodify Black Lives Matter into a corporate lo logo. And I wrote in this article, if the anti-racist struggle ends up, unless it ends up emptied of its transformative potential, it has to identify and target capitalism as the system that gave rise and continuously reproduces racism. And then I have a quote here. We never negated the fact that there was racism in America, but we said that it is a byproduct. What comes off of capitalism, that happens to be racism. And that was said by Fred Hampton, the charismatic Chicago leader of the Black Panther Party, shortly before his extrajudicial assassination by the FBI and the Chicago police in 1969. And Hampton went on to say that capitalism comes first and next is racism. That when they brought slaves over here, it was to make money. So first the idea came that they want to make money. And then the slaves came over in order to make that money. That means through historic fact that racism had to come from capitalism. It had to be capitalism first, and racism was a byproduct of that. So that's what Hampton said. That was the position of the Black Panther Party, which is evoked very frequently now to give inspiration to the current struggles. Yet Hampton's anti-capitalist perspective appears at this time 
to be largely absent. And I wrote in this article, the final uh, few sentences, which I'll read now, to the extent that the struggle against police brutality is limited to targeting disproportionate police violence against racially oppressed communities, the less we will be able to confront the underlying structural causes of this violence. Racist police are but an extension of the capitalist state. They exist to defend property from the propertyless, to enforce the power of capital and the rich over the poor and dispossessed majority, who in the United States, disproportionately from racially oppressed communities. So in the big picture, the solution is not to reform law enforcement, since law enforcement means enforcing a legal system that under capitalism is intended to protect the rich and the powerful from the poor and the dispossessed through criminalization of the latter, or simply through enforcement of property rights. So the police, we have to see, are a coercive instrument of capital, the capitalist state to control surplus labor, the poor and the working class. And in the United States, workers from racially oppressed groups disproportionately swell the ranks of that surplus labor, as do worldwide people from the global south. So that's what I wrote after your, um, the first part of this interview. So we can talk about three types of racism. The first is interpersonal racism. This is what people mean when they talk about microaggressions. But we can't understand this interpersonal, localized, small group microaggressions or racism without linking it to macroaggressions. We can't, for instance, possibly understand how this Washington football team was uh, forced by mass pressure to rename itself away from the Washington Redskins, which is a microaggression, but you can't understand that outside of the history of genocide against the indigenous and continued structural oppression and subordination. So that's interpersonal racism. The second is what you're referring to, which is institutional racism. And what we mean, at least in the radical social sciences, by institutional racism is actual discrimination within society's institutions, its economic, political, and social institutions. So when, for instance, a Black or a Latino family is denied a mortgage to buy a house because of lending discrimination, that's institutional racism. And of course, we need to fight against that. But that is not even getting to the underlying essence of racism. There's a third type, and that is what we call structural racism. And here, the anti-racist upsurge and the diet, you know, the, the um, popular language now is saying it's targeting structural racism. But I'm making a friendly, a solidarity critique here. It's not fully uh, doing that because structural racism is grounded itself in capitalism, in the whole socioeconomic uh, system. So I want to, it's a long-winded response, but I want to discuss this um, a little bit and say that if we want to understand structural racism, we need to understand the different way which different communities participate in U.S. economy and society. Black and Latino, indigenous communities participate structurally in a different way. Of course, coming out of slavery, then Jim Crow, the genocide against indigenous communities, the subordination of Mexicans, which were forcibly incorporated into the United States, uh, continued subordination of immigrants. And one of the things we identify here is that in the labor market, different race, racially oppressed groups participate in a subordinate manner. This is critically important. Now, this sounds very distant from the mass anti-racist uprising taking place now, but it actually gets to the root of racism. And we must start the story with this. So Blacks, Latinos, uh, Indigenous, 
other oppressed groups in the United States are locked into the lowest rungs of the workforce. And I'm going to, in, in expanding on this, I'm going to conclude in just a moment, this is also linked to what's going on with the pandemic, racism and the pandemic, locked into vastly disproportionately to the most marginalized, the lowest paying, the lowest status, the most dangerous work in the capitalist economy in the United States. And on that basis also is disproportionately marginalized from the leading political and social institutions. And if you look at who is surplus population in the United States, what I mean by surplus is whole populations that have been locked out, simply made redundant or surplus, disproportionately Black. And so it's no surprise that we have a system of mass incarceration which disproportionately locks, locks up black people because blacks are disproportionately surplus labor, uh, unemployed, structurally unemployed, and the system needs to lock them up to put down any real or potential rebellion. So here's some dramatic, very dramatic data on this disproportionate, on, on what's going on here. From 2015 to 2019, a total of 4,855 people were shot and killed by police in the United States. Of those, 1,295 were black, compared to 2,471 white. By the way, these shot and killed are people that are unarmed. So you have here a lot of white people are also being killed by police, but the rate that blacks are killed by police is more than twice of that by whites. And you're listening to an interview with Dr. William Robinson here on American Indian Airwaves. He's speaking on authoritarianism, fascism, and the decline of capitalism and American democracy. We want to remind listeners as part of the KPFK 61st anniversary that KPFK needs your support. You can participate by donating at the kpfk.org website or calling 818-985-5735. You can make monthly donations as part of the KPFK's Sustainer's Circle. Or for $125, you can pick up Greg Palace's new book, How Trump Stole 2020, The Hunt for America's Vanish Voters, a critically important new book as America faces a presidential election this November of 2020. Again, you can visit the kpfk.org website. There are other premium items to select from or call 818-985-5735. And now back to our interview with Dr. William Robinson on authoritarianism, fascism, the decline of capitalism, and American democracy. Now, in this anti-racist uprising we're currently experiencing, people know that data. But here is the thing. Where is the greatest danger coming from black to black lives? What is the great, greatest danger to black lives in the United States? Well, it comes from the economic violence of capitalism, which takes hundreds of thousands of black and other victims of unemployment, of hazardous occupational hazards, of malnutrition, substandard housing, homelessness, lack of access to healthcare, exposure to toxic waste, and so forth. That's This is the structural reality behind the disproportional impact of COVID-19 on Black and Latino communities and Indigenous communities. And here is another data. This data is very important because it tells us this larger story of structural racism, which in turn underpins the institutional racism that you're asking me about. More than 5,000 workers die on the job every year 
as in the United States as a result of work injuries. The majority of them preventable, and another 50 to 60,000 die every year due to occupational diseases, which themselves can be avoided. So predictably, blacks and Latinos are overrepresented in these occupations, which are the most dangerous and the least remunerated and the lowest status and the most precarious. So blacks are disproportionately impacted by these 5,000 deaths and another 60,000 uh, deaths. And, you know, and to conclude, this is a long-winded um, response, but we have to start the story with these structural underpinnings of racism if we want to fight effectively and eradicate racism. So a few days ago, I believe it was just I think, I forgot the exact day, or July 20, just a, a few days ago, there was a strike for black lives and hundreds of thousands of workers in the United States participated. But here is some data which came out around that strike, that black Americans make up 13% of the US population, but some 20% of workers in the food preparation and service sector, which is the most lowest paid and lowest status and a dangerous job. According to the U.S. government data also, 37% of the country's nursing, psychiatric, and home health aides are black. 13% of the population, 37% of those in the front lines, healthcare. And so it's no wonder that blacks are disproportionately dying by COVID-19. And here, and by the way, the same data goes for Latinos and for other racially oppressed groups within the working class. And African-Americans, again, make up 13% of the population, but are more than 26% warehouse workers in Amazon. So what is the conclusion here that underlying interpersonal racism and microaggressions, but more significantly, because you're asking about institutional racism, underlying that institutional racism, which we also need to fight against, is the larger racism that emanates from the socioeconomic system of capitalism itself. And so, and so I'll conclude this, I promise you, I'm going to conclude this long-winded answer with this statement. So I started by reading an article that I had written just a, just a few days ago, saying that this mass uprising against racism taking place right now in Portland and everywhere, it's still continuing, that it faces the danger of being crushed by a combination of repression, very mild reform, uh, and co-optation. And the way that we avoid it being crushed is by linking the anti-racist struggle to the struggle of the whole working class, especially led by poor and racially oppressed uh, workers. And by, in that way, targeting the larger structures that produce police violence and the forms of racism that people are talking about. So I know that's very long, but I think we need to, um, that's where we need to be focusing on. Thank you very much for that long, but yet important summary of this question of racism. I don't want to get into the to the current situation where there were last discussion talked about oppression and fascistic or, or now fascist elements within the federal government. I don't want to go that right now because I want to stick with this subject of racism. And they're, they're very important like the triangleness of the situation where the intensity is most like known secret of the effects of the working class in its nature of what you describe of the hazard, occupational hazard, the injuries and the deaths within the society, within the United States working class. But when you talked about this racism, how is racism used in order to, number one, separate people because of kind, and you describe the occupational separation. What is so 
important to acknowledge that this situation exists? Why is it so important? Well, the short answer is, and then I'll just break it down a bit, we're never going to achieve our emancipation, our liberation. We're never going to be a put an end to all these different forms of oppression, whether, whether we're talking about racial oppression, gender oppression, sexual oppression, whatever it is, if we don't see how all of these forms of oppression are linked to the larger socioeconomic system. So that's why this is so important politically. But you're also asking, the first part of what you just asked is, you know, what is the purpose of racism? Let's, let me add phrase there, for the ruling groups. So it's, it's, it's without racism, this system would collapse. First of all, racism allows the ruling groups, the corporate elite, the capitalist elite, to super exploit a sector of the working class. So look what's going on in the meatpacking uh, plants. The meatpacking plants are vastly disproportionately immigrants and undocumented immigrants because they're undocumented, because they're immigrants that are subject to racial oppression, they can be super exploited and forced into these extremely dangerous work conditions. If they go on strike, they can be deported because they don't have um, documents. So that's one example of how the ruling groups need this racism. Secondly, racism divides the working class. It makes some sectors of the working class privileged, that's disproportionately white and disproportionately male, and other sectors of the working class the most downtrodden. Now, you might say, and some people say this, but it's a very big mistake. You might say that, well, racism is good for white workers because they get more privilege over black or Latino or indigenous workers. But that is false in the larger picture. And just to give one of, you know, thousands, we can talk for hours about this, thousands of examples. When you manipulate white workers into voting for conservative political people in office, Republicans, Democrats, whatever they are, who then defund health and education and instead beef up the military, those same white workers who are slightly privileged over black and Latino workers, for instance, end up not having health care, having deteriorated education, et cetera, et cetera. So racism in the long run is not in the interests of even more, more privileged white straighters of the working class. And finally, and this we spoke about in the, you know, in the last interview, we spoke about the threat of fascism. But remember what we discussed in that last interview, that these more privileged white sectors of the working class have been experiencing socioeconomic destabilization under capitalist globalization. They're moving downward, they're facing rising insecurity and, and, um, and rising levels of social anxiety. And the system, and I mean, this is Trump's role, the system uses that anxiety, that insecurity, that fear over an uncertain future to whip up racist hysteria and then channel it against scapegoats such as immigrants so that they don't question the system. So all around, you know, all around, if why is it so important for us to be talking about racism and linking it to the socioeconomic system? Because that's the only way to move forward towards our emancipation. William, it's kind of an interesting juncture because here we are in 2020 and in many ways what we need are some similar analyses, although placed into 2020 from the 1960s. Mm -hmm. I remember from my own personal history of the advances that were made over time, for example, students to of a, for a democratic society becoming weather or developments within each organization that was, like you mentioned, Fred Hampton from the Panthers. The Panthers went through a certain number of changes as well, ideologically in terms of understanding the root causes of racism and, and not only racism, but what you're saying, that if you don't get back to the system as a whole, which was important to name as imperialism, not just capitalism because it's a worldwide phenomenon, which it was then and is now, 
even more so now perhaps than then, although it's hard to compare. It's really, really important that men, the leadership needs to develop or relook at some of those roots in order to get to a place where people can understand what's going on and act accordingly. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we always need to remember our past and to take the lessons from the past. So if we suffer from historic amnesia, we are doomed to not move forward. So it's very important to look critically at the 60s. But one thing going on in the 60s is precisely what you said, that with all of the problems, and we can't go back and resurrect the 60s, we're in 2020 now. Right, a very different situation. But there was a critique of capitalism. That's why I read that quote from, from, uh, from Fred Hampton. And you're absolutely right. The critique was of capitalism. And of course, I'm saying capitalism here, but what we mean is global capitalism. It's a system which now engulfs the entire planet. And it's out of capitalism that imperialism and colonialism spread around um, around around the world. But what did the ruling groups, the powers that be, be, what did they do and how did they respond to this mass radical upsurge from below in the 1960s and early 1970s? Well, they had a dual strategy. One strategy, of course, was repression. And so that led to systems of mass incarceration and uh, so forth, the incredibly beefing up of policing, uh, militarization of policing. That's been going on since the 1970s. The so-called war on drugs is a way of beefing up systems of repression. Uh, the war on youth, the so-called war on gangs, um, etc. So that was one strategy that the powers that be used in the wake of the 1960s uprisings was this extension of repression. Right. And we're fighting against that today. But the other strategy they also used is co-optation. They co-opted a portion of the leadership, a portion of the base and gave them some participation in, in U.S. capitalism. The moment of silence is over. And that concludes our show for today here on American Indian Airwaves. That was Dr. William Robinson, who's professor of sociology and teaches in global studies at the University of California, Santa Barbara, speaking on authoritarianism, fascism, and the decline of capitalism and American democracy. A special thank you to our guest for the entire hour, Dr. Andrea Garcia and Alexandra Ferguson Valdez, both from the Los Angeles City County Native American Indian Commission and Dr. William Robinson. A special thank you to our musical guest, Aragon star Koopa Aina and the band Blackfire. American Indian Airwaves is mixed and mastered in the studio of Burnt Swamp Studio in Signal Hill, California. For Marcus Lopez, Fabiana Hirsch, I've been your host for the hour, Larry Smith. Until next time. Why your freedom manifests on their graves And the blood never comes clean from their guilty minds Nor the hands that hold the chains Be heard. After all the lies.
against our fears, try not to become what we've endured, wearing our souls on the thread, the moment of silence is over.